Amen. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. Today we will be together in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to read together verses 31 to 33. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 31 to 33. Please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people today. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we give these next few moments to you, and we ask you to speak to us. You've heard us speak to you today. We've prayed, we've sung, we've confessed our faith, and now we ask that you would open your holy mouth and speak your life-changing word your all-powerful Word, the Word that brought worlds into being, the world that can set everything right in our souls today. You have the words of eternal life in you alone. Speak to us, O God. We are ready to listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Over the past couple of months, we have discussed all the ins and outs of public worship, the day of worship, Sabbath observance, and the Christian year, all according to the regulative principle. We've zoomed all the way in, we've zoomed all the way out. We've looked at this from top to bottom, but there's one last angle we need to see. This morning, we come to the final sermon in our series on biblical reformed worship. Today, we will discuss all of life as worship. We began this series by noting that worship is the ultimate purpose of the church. Worship is the main reason God has a church in the world We started off this series by meditating for a few moments on this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Peter says to his Christian audience, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are you chosen Why are you royal? Why are you a people? Why are you possessed? Why are you a priesthood? Why all these descriptions? Why? Answer, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why the church is in the world. There are lots of other reasons the church is in the world. This is our number one purpose Now, our mission, our number one mission is the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, teach, preach, baptize. 
And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's go. That's the mission. But what's the purpose? Why does the mission exist? It's because there are places in this world where God's name is not glorified. There are lives in this world that are not lived to His glory. There are people, people groups, whole nations in the world that do not worship at the feet of Christ, who do not fly His banner over their lives, homes, neighborhoods, communities, counties, countries, kingdoms. There's a place in this world where He is not worshipped. And so we go to make disciples so that they get called out of darkness into His marvelous light, so they can join the chorus. They can join in this great act of worship that we're called to give. That's the number one purpose, worship. And the good news is, once we get done with the Great Commission and we're in the eternal state, new heavens and new earth, resurrection, it's all finished. God's won the day and we're with Him forever. No more Great Commission. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest, Jeremiah says. But there's one task you'll never get to the end of, Christian. And it's worshiping an infinite God of absolute, mind-shattering holiness and glory. A glory that has to be veiled in the incarnation. Otherwise, it would blind our eyes. And you see a little peak of it in the transfiguration. You see a little bit of His glory shine through. And that light that filled Mount Tabor in the Gospels will one day flood the earth and the world will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's our purpose, to see Him, know Him, love Him, worship Him, be staggered by His marvelous light. This is why we exist. That's where we started this series and it's where it has to end with the ultimate purpose. Notice how Peter has described you He says, you've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All this language. Why? So that you, Christian, can be a full-time worshiper. You are about this calling wherever you go. When you belong to Christ, now your whole life is not centered around anything other than Worship. All of life becomes worship when you turn to the Lord. Question is, how do we do this? How do you make all of life an ongoing act of worship? In our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says in verse 31, Whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of life as worship, 1 Peter 2, must somehow be connected to glorifying God in all things, 1 Corinthians 10. These go together. So first, we need to think about how worship and glory are connected. And then we can see how to live this kind of life. So, in the first place then... How are worship and glory connected? Well, what does it mean to worship? It means to give glory to something. To give glory to something. We glorify things when we praise them. 
make much of them, count them as weighty and of great value. And in fact, in the Hebrew language from the Old Testament, the word for glory is just the ordinary word for weight. If something is weighty, it's glorious. And God's the weightiest thing we can imagine, the most glorious thing, the most important thing. But we glorify things any time that we make much of them and count them to be weighty and significant and of great value. We glorify things when we give our time, our thoughts, our energy and money and actions and affections to them. In other words, when we make something an object of ultimate concern and commitment, the person or thing you glorify most is your object of worship. When we yield ourselves to something as an object of ultimate concern to us, ultimate weight, we make that thing our functional God. And everything we do in life to serve that God is worship. For our lives give that God the glory by how we live. Living for that thing glorifies that thing. You see, our functional God is the God who gets its way in your life. What gets its way? What overrides any other commitment? What comes first? What gets its way in your life? The thing that you'll adjust your schedule for no matter what. When our functional God is not the true God, we become idolaters. And this is why in the very context of our passage, uh, earlier in the context, Paul says that we should flee idolatry. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's part of the context. And that's where he ends with, Do all things to the glory of God. Do not serve and worship idols. Flee from them. When our functional God is not the true God, we become idolaters. Worship, therefore, is unavoidable. Everyone worships something. Every life is lived to the glory of some God or other. Because every human being has an ultimate or has an object of ultimate concern and commitment. And since every human being has an object of ultimate concern and commitment, every human being is fundamentally religious. Even the most secular and atheistic. The man consumed with career and money and corporate advancement. The woman obsessed with a social cause or ideology. The politician who will do anything to stay in power. The parent who ignores her children to support her conveniences and addictions. The self-absorbed, apathetic bro who just lives to get drunk on the weekends and find the next hookup. These all serve different gods. As secular and atheistic and non-religious as they look, they're serving their idols. 
And their lives are centered around those gods. And their lives give glory to those gods. They're all worshipers. And so are you. What is your object of ultimate concern and commitment? What is the centerpiece of your life, the blazing sun at the center of your solar system around which everything else revolves and orbits? What does your life revolve around, Christian? What God gets its way in your day-to-day experience? Worship is unavoidable. But you get to decide whom you will worship. You get to decide who or what you will live for. Listen to these words in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Now therefore, Joshua says to the children of Israel, now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Then he says in verse 15, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you see what the, what the choice is between? It's not between the Lord and atheism. It's between you will serve the true God or you'll get your pick of the buffet bar of other gods. But you don't get to say no God. And we always quote that, choose this day whom you'll serve, like it's either God or a false God. But no, he says, you have to serve the true God. And if you don't, the choice is between all the idols. It's either the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the maker of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or you pick your idol. But Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Worship is unavoidable, but you get to decide whom you will worship and who you will live for. Now that we see how worship and glory are connected, let's look now at how to do, as Paul says in our text, to do all to the glory of God. Look at 1031 in its entirety. Paul says, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Don't you love that? Whether you eat or drink. Paul didn't start out with these big, awesome works, these big, flashy deeds. Do Build a hospital for the glory of God. Found an orphanage for the glory of God. Go to Africa or some other unreached place and give your life away. Cross a culture and be a missionary for 40 years for the glory of God. Now, you obviously can do all those things to God's glory, but Paul isn't talking about the big, flashy works. He said, when you take a bite and you take a sip, do it to the glory of God. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever else you do, 
Do that to God's glory. Paul zooms in on the ordinary, mundane things of life. Not just the large tasks of life, but the everyday, the routine things of life. Today, if I were writing this passage, I might say, scroll on your phone, or make a grocery list, or go shopping, or watch a game, or play with your kids, or clean out the lint trap to the glory of God. He do it all to God's glory. Do the everyday task, the thoughtless stuff, the routine. Do it to God's glory. But how? How do we do that? We do it by making God. You do it by making God your ultimate concern. Your ultimate commitment in all that you do. Theologians like to give definitions for things. It's what keeps them in, in, in business. It's why they have a job. They make distinctions. They make definitions. And one of the most enduring definitions of theology is this. Theology is the study of God and of all other things in relation to God. We're studying God and then everything else in creation and how it relates to God and how God relates to it. Not bad. If we were to make a parallel definition of worship, it might go something like this. Worship is glorifying God and living all of life in relation to His glory. It's relating everything in our lives to Him in some way. Even the most mundane things. How do we do that? We relate everything to Him and we make Him our ultimate concern when you make sure that above all things your actions are pleasing to God. You give thought to God. Is God pleased with this action, this decision, this choice? Is God pleased? And if we ask ourselves that question in each scenario, we make Him our concern. Is God pleased? Now, it might be a weird question to ask yourself as you're jotting down your grocery list. Is God pleased that I wrote down milk before zucchini? You don't have to get silly with it. But the, the, the thing is, think about in terms of, is God my ultimate concern? Do everything in a way that you know will honor God. Do everything in a way you know will honor God. And if you make your grocery list with faith in Christ, knowing that, look, whether I get the cheapest item on the, on the shelf or not, whether I save money or splurge a little, I trust in Christ and that's my justification. Now that might sound silly and, and like kind of awkward at first, but we got to get used to putting God into our daily equations our daily decision-making, our daily thought processes. Some of us can go just all week and he doesn't cross our mind except when we ask the blessing before a meal. We got to give thought to God way more specifically. Do everything in a way that you know will honor God. It means you think about how will God evaluate my choices today? 
This is what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This is October. This is Reformation Month. Martin Luther, the great prophet, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote a very enduring treasured document called the Small Catechism. He wrote it in 1529, and it's still a document that Lutherans use and cherish to this day. And it really is fabulous, the Small Catechism. As Presbyterians, we have the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we have the Larger Catechism. Luther did something similar for the Lutherans. Way before the, you know, a hundred years before we had our stuff, Luther wrote the Small Catechism, and he wrote the Large Catechism. Well, in the Small Catechism in 1529, he begins with an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So he'll say, what does the first commandment say? And then you quote it. And then it says, what does this mean? And then it gives an answer. Here's the first commandment. What does this mean? Second commandment. What does this mean? All the way to ten. And every answer starts with the exact same phrase. This means we should fear and love God so that we do X, Y, or Z or avoid doing X, Y, or Z. First commandment, what does this mean? Well, it means we should fear and love God and do X, Y, Z. Second commandment, fear and love God, fear and love God, fear and love... Ten times we should fear and love God. In all we do, we make the fear and love of God our ultimate concern. We make His will and pleasure our highest commitment. It's like the fear and love of a deep friendship... You and your closest friend, you love each other, you love spending time with each other, you have a good time in each other's company, you laugh, you talk, you joke, you share life, you hug and cry, you go through stuff together. You love this friendship, but there's also a fear side to it. I think, how's that? Well, there's a fear side to it because you love this person so much and you value this friendship, you don't want to jeopardize it. You don't want to like destroy this friendship and hurt that person and just betray him and sabotage him and, and wound the fellowship you have. And so you're fearful. You, you avoid those things that will damage your relationship because you value it. You protect it. You walk in the fear and the love. And that's something similar to what we do with God. We love God. We, we enjoy walking in His ways and praying and worshiping and getting to know Him and being His and belonging to Him. And, and we want to cultivate that relationship. But we, we're, we're, we retreat in horror at the thought that we could damage this relationship and push God away and, and harm our relationship with Him. And so in your day-to-day life, as you're making choices and actions and decisions on a routine, mundane, day-to-day experience, you're thinking about God. You're walking in the fear of God. I don't want to transgress His will. I love His will. I, and I want to enjoy rich fellowship with Him. So i got to walk in obedience because I want Him to be honored. I want Him to get praise. As Tom was singing in it, I want my life song to sing to Him. I want it to be pleasing in his ears. In all we do, we make the fear and love of God our ultimate concern. His will and pleasure our highest commitment. Just as having a deep friendship is in the details of that friendship, so is glorifying God. Glory is in the details. If you had a friend and... They say that you are their best friend. But then, 
every time you make plans, they almost never answer the phone, or they always cancel, they always put other friends first, they don't make time for you, they barely talk to you, you don't hang out, you don't... And you say, but I'm confused. You say I'm your best friend, but you seem to not have any time for me. You can say I'm your best friend all day, but friendship's in the details of life together. And it's the same way with glorifying God. It's in the details. Oh yeah, God, you're my highest concern, but I never think about you. I never make time for you. I cancel on you to do other stuff routinely. I put everything else first, and you get my leftovers. Other things crowd out our commitment to him. And we don't want that to happen, so we walk in the fear and the love of God. Its glory is in the details. And so we live for God in the details of life. A life of worship that glorifies God as the object of our ultimate concern and the glory is in the details. We come now, finally, to the model, the pattern, the ultimate exemplar of a human life lived to the glory of God. We hear a lot today about living an authentic life life, being real. I, I listen to folks on, on YouTube or see people online, and they'll say things like, you got to be true to you. You got to live your life. You got to be you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. You got to be you. Be real. Be authentic. Authenticity is valued deeply. Being real with each other is a value in our world today. But I tell you, the Bible presents to us the most authentic human life ever lived. The life that perfectly glorified God in all things. The life of Jesus. Glory is in the details, and glory looks like Jesus. Christian, you were made and you were saved to live like Jesus. First Peter calls us as Christians a chosen race. Christian is your race. It's your fundamental identity. When you become a Christian, all the other allegiances and identities you have Dissolve into this one identity, Christian. So it's no longer found in our ethnicity, our place of origin, our genealogy, our bloodline, our skin color. All the other things that the world wants us to choose as our fundamental identity and make everything about those things and to make those our functional gods that define us. But Christians are a chosen race. In other words, everybody in all nations, every tribe, tongue, people, group, and country, anyone who names the name of Christ, that's who you are now. And you, in other words, Jesus has created a new humanity. He has made it possible for you to be human in a whole new way, to transcend all the other identities and barriers and boundaries that we set up for ourselves 
And now it doesn't matter what land or country or color or language you have. You can be Christian, called and chosen to belong to Jesus Christ. He's given us a new way to be human. He's given us a perfect example of what it means to live the most authentic, fully human life there is. You were made in the image of God. And the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so if we want to be restored into the image of God that we're made to have, that looks like becoming more like Jesus, leaning into Jesus, living like Jesus, looking like Jesus, loving like Jesus. Glorifying God looks like the life of Jesus. And this is what you were made for and what you were saved for. Look at the next two verses in our passage. We've looked at verse 31, do all to the glory of God. Then he says this in verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. In verse 32, he says, don't give offense to Jews, Greeks, or the church, Christians. Jews, Greeks, or Christians. So Jewish non-Christians, Greek non-Christians, Christians. Don't give offense to them. And what it doesn't mean don't say something that's going to make them offended the way we think about being offended today. He means don't throw down a stumbling block in their path. Don't you be something that trips them up and causes them to go against their conscience Don't be a barrier to other people, whether they're Jews, Greeks, or fellow Christians. Don't make the way you live be a barrier to them. He says, just in verse 33, just as I try to please everyone everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. You put the advantage of others first. Instead of insisting on your own way, you put others first. In other words, you love and you serve your neighbor. You're not a stumbling block to them. And then he says in 33, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do. Now, at first, that sounds, that sounds wrong. Like, Paul, we shouldn't be people pleasers. We should, if I tried to please everybody and everything I did, I would be miserable, and it wouldn't work. Uh, you can't please everybody. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, this is what he's, he means by not being a stumbling block to people. Don't be a roadblock to Christ. Don't be the reason that a Jewish unbeliever doesn't come to Christ. Don't be the reason the way you live, the way the reason a Greek unbeliever doesn't come to Christ. And don't be the reason that other Christians violate their own conscience and live in a way they think they shouldn't because they see you living the way they shouldn't. You should love and serve your neighbor and you should seek the good of your neighbor. And ultimately, you seek the salvation of your neighbor, that they may be saved. What's Paul doing here? He's telling us how to live like Christ, which is the very next verse. Chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be like the one who did not make his life a stumbling block to salvation. Do not be like the one who puts himself first Do not be like the one who sets his own advantage, his own self as the center of everything so that life revolves around him and his functional gods. 
But if you live like Christ, your life is going to be Christ-shaped, gospel-shaped, cross-shaped. You will love and serve your neighbor. You will seek the good and the salvation of others. You will, you will be humble. You won't put self first. You'll be a sincere worshiper of God. And you'll make your life a picture of Jesus' life. In Him, you'll learn a new way to be a human being. You'll find a new identity. You'll find a new joy. You'll find a new hope in Christ, Christian. That's your name. Christ is in your name. When you live like Jesus, your life will most glorify God. Now, of course, in ourselves, we don't have these resources to do it. And that's why we need the hope of the gospel. And we need the glorious power of the Holy Spirit who can be in us and with us forever to change us on the inside so that we have the heart of Christ, we have the mind of Christ, we have the spirit of Christ, and we live a life like Christ. A life where we constantly repent of our sin, put our faith in Him, and walk with Him, and let our lives bring glory and honor to Him. A life that's not about me, that's not full of selfishness and full of my own self-centered agendas. A life that's dedicated to having God as my ultimate concern and pleasing Him, my highest commitment, and where I find my great joy, just like Jesus did. It's the life of humbly serving others. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, the light of the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus. Let your light Shine before men, Christian, that they might see your good deeds, but give glory to your Father in heaven, not to you. A Jesus-shaped, Jesus-centered life is the fullest human life. A life of love and goodness. A life that glorifies God in all things. Follow Jesus. Fear and love God. And make your life, all of life, an act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a powerful word in your holy scriptures. A word that can speak into us and make us new. A word that can change us from the inside out. Lord, we give you thanks that you speak to us from your word and that you show us in the life of Jesus how to look and to live in a way that honors you and glorifies you. We're reminded of Jesus who said, my food and my drink is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven, to always do what is pleasing to him. So that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it'll be your will that we feed upon May you be our object of ultimate concern and commitment today. Mold us and shape us to look like Jesus today. Give us the promises of your gospel. Give us the power of your spirit. Christ in us to change us so that we are formed more and more into his image from the inside out. Help us to make our lives lives of honor to you and glory to you. Help us to give thought to you, to walk in the fear and love of you even in the mundane, routine things of life, 
that you're always on our minds, that you're our highest and best thought. Lord God, be our treasure. May you be our captivating vision. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.